All right, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Newly Meds podcast. Today we have another special episode um, for everyone. I'm bringing on someone when I started at a new hospital-based EMS system that ended up being my first partner and someone that throughout the last year of being here has really shown me a lot of different things and we've seen a lot of different calls together and just talked about a lot of different perspectives. And to me, that's one of my most favorite things in EMS is that we meet a variety of different partners and providers, and we can share experiences. And today, that's what this episode's about. So I don't want to get too much into Olivia, who is my partner and today's guest speaker. Uh, I want to let her introduce herself, a little bit about her background. But we're going to be talking about Rabdo today, interesting call that she had. But before we get into that, I'm going to let her introduce herself. So without further ado, Olivia, welcome to the podcast. All right. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Will. Yeah, like Will said, I'm fairly new to the EMS game. I've been an EMT for about 10 months now. And I really got into this career because I was in my undergraduate going through a pre-medicine program and I realized I didn't have any clinical experience and I thought that this would be a great way to get myself in the front door in the medical field. So um, after my undergrad, I picked up EMS right away. I was really lucky because I found a EMT program that was very accelerated. So they let me use some of the knowledge that I had obtained in my undergraduate. But unfortunately, there was a lot of gaps in my education and the foundation that I had in EMS. So making the transition from understanding the body at school and understanding it in the field was very difficult for me. So I think that I came on the podcast today just to talk about how we can merge a biological understanding with a physical understanding so that providers like me who are doing this to get experience and want to progress in the field have an idea of how they can provide care by pattern recognition and the biological understanding. So it's great to be here. Well, Olivia, it's great to have you here. And Like you said, I think that you have nailed one of the most important things, and that's continually learning with your partner, but came on the podcast today, and we're going to talk about a case that you got into, but one of the unique perspectives that you bring is a lot of our listeners work EMS, and they understand the setup. When you got to your new hospital-based system, you were placed on a MICU pretty quickly and were paired up with a paramedic partner full-time, and so because of that, you got to see a lot of the more... Uh, sicker patients that are a little on the more critical side of things. But not only that, you got to see a lot of advanced care done. And so when you merge what you learned in college to what you learned in EMT school, and then you put it into the street and you get to work on a MICU and see it from a different level, I think that the perspective really changes. So before we jump into your case, talk me through a little bit about what it was like coming into a new hospital-based EMS system, never being on the street uh, as an EMT, and getting on a MICU and figuring out the ALS side of things, but not only that, addressing patients that tend to be a little bit sicker than what you would see if you were doing uh, like non-emergency transports or lower acuity 911 calls. Absolutely. Um, I think it's really good that you point out the difference in care levels because if the paramedic that I was working with was treating a patient who, you know, definitely needed ALS, I could see myself understanding the patient better if I was not the one treating the patient, which is very interesting because you'd want to believe that as you're with each patient, you're thinking through every step and you're really looking at their system as a whole. But I think when I took a step back, it was much easier for me to do that. So at the beginning of me being a BLS provider, if I had patients that were genuinely BLS and I knew this is my call, this is what I'm going to do, I found myself getting very tunnel visioned looking for patterns. But when my partner would take a step back, I would see, oh, maybe this treatment does this. I can take a look at the patient from a further perspective and see how the treatments were working. So I think it was a really good perspective just to see this pa- this patient might be higher acuity, but like I can see more things that are going on here. Yeah, I definitely think that you nailed another great topic, which is when you have a partner at a higher level of care, you can take a step back understanding that 
Um, at the end of the day, it's not your patient. Obviously, I've always said that uh, being in the back of the unit is being a team effort, but you also understand when you're an EMT on a MICU that you have help. Your partner's a paramedic. Someone is there that can do advanced procedures that you might not have the knowledge um, and obviously you don't have the ability to do based on the scope of practice. So you get a really unique perspective when you are a MICU EMT, but especially being a green less than a year MICU EMT and having a lot of foundational textbook knowledge going through pre-med, you can take a, a look back during the call and especially after the call at a lot of these different disease processes and sort of see how they function in real life. You know, we can read a textbook all day and then when you get the real life experience and see that patients present differently, it's a whole different ball game. So with that being said, you ran into a unique case pretty early on in your career in EMS and I want to hear your perspective on it. You were able to take a step back and see some things. Walk me through that call and let's break it down for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. A disclosure, a little caveat before I begin. This was not a good call on my behalf, but that's why I'm on the podcast because I want other people to learn from it. So I'll set the scene for you. Will said that we work in a suburban area, so it was it was in a suburban area, a couple townhomes, and we get called out to a man uh, older than 70 who his son reported he checked in on him three days ago, checked in on him again, and he just saw a rapid decline. The, the dad just wasn't responding normally. He was incontinent and hadn't appeared to go to the bathroom by himself in three days. The son assumed that he hadn't eaten. A rapid decline from a man who was usually pretty physically active. So we get on scene and we find this man on his couch, and yeah, he does look bad. He looks gray. He's not really saying anything, maybe some mumbles. We couldn't get a proper orientation. And it was a, a class one call in our zone, so there was a paramedic on the way. But Will, just from that part, if I, if I say to you, like, hey, we know from the sun this man has probably been here for three days. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't, you know, gone to the bathroom. He's usually a mobile guy, and he's not acting normally. What are your thoughts initially? Right. And that's a that's an awesome question. So at the paramedic level, and I'll throw it back to you and think of your primary thoughts on the way to the call. But if I get dispatched for something like this, right, we're immediately thinking that there is some sort of acute, you know, over the last three to five days, change in mobility. With that, you would think probably a change in mental status. So going into this call, right, we're thinking of someone that um, probably has an acute mental status change that probably uh, has not been moving well or what we would call within their baseline for the last few days. So some of the things that I think about are, is this patient having a neurological event? Does this patient have some sort of seizure history and his family hasn't seen him in a while? He hasn't been moving great. Did he break his leg? It could be something as simple as that. But on the advanced level, right, we start to think of different things that could be going on metabolically. When you know someone isn't moving for an extended period of time, our bodies aren't functioning the way they need to. Our muscles are meant to move, so we can start thinking a little bit deeper into that um, at an advanced level. And those are some of the things that go through my mind as a paramedic responding to this call. And so like you said, walk us through your first impressions um, to further set your scene a little bit because we talked about this call as well. Um, you did say this was a call class one in your zone. At this point in time, you're on a BLS unit, so it's an EMT and an EMT, and a squad is on the way. Um, so a paramedic is in a chase unit, and they're going to have uh, some sort of delay probably prior to, you know, arrival. So you're going to get there and it's going to be your patient until the paramedic gets there, which could be anywhere from two to maybe eight, nine, ten minutes, depending on where that paramedic's located. So walk us through your perspective there. Right. Unfortunately, at this location, I think it was about an eight minute difference until the paramedic got there. So like you said, I am... I don't know the patient's normal baseline. Uh, the son makes it seem like he had to check up on him. So yes, an acute decline, but I'm, I'm still not sure what I'm dealing with. Um, so my first thought was let's get a set of vitals, see how everything looks, and with the vitals, make sure that I get a glucose. And other than slight tachycardia, I, I believe that he was at around 100 and Otherwise, his vitals were perfect. So uh, he hit 100 on the glucose. His blood pressure was almost 120 over 80. And I was like, okay, so maybe we're dealing with infection here, possibly 
running a fever, but I knew my paramedic was on the way. So it was important that we moved him out of his residence just because there was urine and feces um, right on the couch. And so for his own dignity and for our scene, we moved him to the ambulance. And at this time, the medic got there. And, well, you didn't really say it at the beginning, but I know it's because you know what this podcast is about. Um, things rapidly declined. And it's something that we're all taught in EMT school at the basic level. But I would say I saw the immediate effects of rhabdo take place in this patient. So from there on out, it was very much an ALS call. The patient declined rapidly. Uh, he, he began to seize um, directly after he was moved onto the stretcher. And then by the time we got him into the ambulance, the paramedic was working on cardioversion and we had a very fast transport to the hospital. So I don't know if I mentioned this, but this was my second day off orientation. And as a new EMT, I was a little nervous on each call. You know, you're nervous that you're gonna mess up, make a mistake at any point, but I think I made the ultimate mistake on this one and just missed the smallest thing that could have been the most important because had I just waited for my paramedic on scene for a couple of minutes, we could have avoided this entirely. Yeah, I think that's a another phenomenal point. And so obviously today, I sort of have the in on to know what we're talking about. So I didn't mention it earlier, but we're talking about rhabdomyolysis. And before we jump into it, I'm going to sort of lay the groundwork here for um, what we're going to talk about on today's podcast. But Olivia, you said such a, a great comment. And that was, you know, you're your second day off orientation, which means that you're cleared off as an EMT. Um, no one else is watching you. They trust you. And they're like, yep, you know, past all the skills, past all the evaluations, um, you're good to function on your own. And it's important to recognize we know that we do that at every level of care. And when I think that back to when I was a young and green EMT as well, working in an urban city setting, it definitely was really scary and different. And especially when I got my paramedic certification in my first month, maybe two months as a paramedic, it was it was touch and go. I mean, you're going to calls as a paramedic off orientation. And not only do you have to take care of the patient, my first few months as a paramedic, I was on a MICU um, before I was ever on a squad. So not only do I have to take care of the patient, but my partner is looking at me for like, hey, what do you want me to do? And it's really a great perspective to be able to self-recognize flaws and learn from them. And we all make mistakes on calls. Things go south. That's sort of the whole thing about EMS is we get, you know, patients that aren't doing so well. No one calls 911 because they're having a great day. And a lot of the times as we go about treating our patients, they begin to do worse and we sort of have to adjust. And that's a really hard thing to do. So if you can't look back and reflect on calls and learn from it, uh, you're not going to be able to grow as a provider. So uh, I know that everyone listening probably remembers their first few calls as an EMT or an AEMT or a medic or a nurse, remembers their first few patients as a physician in the hospital. And we all are probably sitting here like, yeah, I don't even know if I would have trusted myself doing that, like kind of kind of touch and go there for a while, right? So really kudos to you for recognizing that and being able to admit it because that's that's a huge part of the learning process. And that's what this podcast is all about is learning and growing together as a whole to become better providers, to just give the best care available for our patient. So re really awesome on you to do that, Olivia. I think that's a, a great point that you made. I think it's really important for any provider to go through a call like this. And even if it's a simple mistake, when it plays out like this, it scares you enough to learn about it. And that's the really important part because I know that I had a background and foundation in why this was happening, but I was standing there in the moment saying, I have never seen anything like this and I don't know what's going on. So it pushes you to understand much more and make sure that it never happens again because you don't want to put yourself in that position. Definitely. And, and that makes a ton of sense. So let's get into this call a little bit, right? We laid the groundwork. We spoke that this patient started to see the effects pretty rapidly of uh, rhabdomyolysis. Our patient um, is sitting, hasn't moved for a while, um, experienced some urinary incontinence and was sitting in their own bodily excrement for an unknown period of time. And uh, they might not be urinating today. A lot of times patients that have this onset of rhabdo, it's not something that just you wake up and boom, I'm in rhabdo. It's something that comes over a period of days. So 
Um, he was in, incontinent for a while. And then he, if I had to take a guess, again, I wasn't on the call, but probably wasn't having any urine production when you got there. He was probably pretty dry, probably looked pretty ill, and everything was a couple of days old. Um, so we sort of can imagine that. So we love Patho here on the Newly Meds podcast. So let's let's talk a little bit about it. I saw this coming. I know that you love Patho here. <laughs> um, so yeah, my foundation for this is just understanding normal muscle contraction and where that goes wrong. So for this case of rhabdo, um, if we're assuming that this man was laying there for three whole days and hadn't moved, um, his, his muscle contraction is not working in the way that it should be. So a normal uh, muscle contraction starts with a nerve impulse, and then you have a calcium influx. And that's the really important part for rhabdo. <laughs> um, this calcium influx kind of changes the actin and myosin, which are these two filaments in your muscles. So when you think about muscles, you can kind of see them in your arms when you move. They're, they're compacting. And so these two filaments slide past one another. So calcium comes in and it binds to a site called troponin. <laughs> maybe you've heard that one before, but maybe not, didn't know it was in the muscles. So once it binds to this site, the uh, tropomyosin changes the configuration of the actin. And once actin changes, myosin can bind to it. So here's where you get the latching of the two and the pooling of the muscle and your contraction happens. So there is other processes at play here because there is a sodium potassium channel that opens and closes that likes to maintain balance and there is ATP at the end to set in and allow the muscle to relax. So what happens when you are entering muscle necrosis, when you haven't moved your muscles, there is still maybe a nerve impulse that's sent. That could happen in crush syndrome, there's still the impulse that's sent, but the muscle doesn't move, or the muscle has just been at rest so long that there's just a buildup of these ions and nowhere to go. So the increased calcium does a couple of things. First, it, it attempts to increase muscle contraction, but if there's nothing there, the cells get very fatigued. Second, it decreases ATP. So you're not going to be able to continually, to like I said before, this is the ATP is the reset for the cycle. So you're not going to be able to reset your muscles for contraction. And then there's also damage to the ion channels. So we talked about the sodium potassium changes and the calcium. All of those, when they are out of whack, make the muscle think that it has to somehow defend itself. And in this case, it's an inflammatory response that causes necrosis. So the muscle fibers then find their way to the bloodstream. And so the rapid decline that I saw in my patient was the onset of these muscles saying, we don't know what's happening, but we need to somehow release the pressure that's in here, and the muscle fibers release themselves into the bloodstream. So that's where it gets really dangerous, and that is where Will is going to help me understand why my medic came in and why she was cardioverted. Right, so when we're thinking about all those things, you know, what you said earlier, when we think about the pathology of rhabdo and the changes in our intracellular contents and the calcium influx, um, it's looking to depolarize our cells. So all of those intracellular contents work in supplement with each other to stimulate our muscles and allow them to do normal activity, right? So when we bend our finger, when we lift weights, when we get to those states of hypertrophy with our muscles and we're trying to grow our muscles, all of that uh, stimulation is working to do what we want it to do. So when we don't move for a long period of time and we don't stimulate our muscles, they, as soon as they start to move, are like, hey, we're moving again. We want to stimulate our body. And so when it does that so rapidly, our patients are going to immediately experience that. So when we think about rhabdo and how it affects our patients, we often try to struggle with actually defining what rhabdomyolysis is, but we do know that when the intracellular contents of that muscle release, uh, we can have a number of occurrences happen. And we most often think about our patients becoming maybe a little bit hypocalcemic, having some magnesium imbalances, especially some potassium influx. So our patients are going to start to become hyperkalemic, hypocalcemic, maybe with a little bit of hypomagnesiumesia. So 
we think of a number of things that are going to negatively affect our patient. So Olivia, think back to that call, walk us through the steps, walk us through that process and how quickly things changed and sort of how you took it with your patient. I'll be completely honest. I thought, oh, he has a seizure disorder and we didn't know it, (laughs) which is pretty far off the mark in this one. Um, So originally when we got there, his position, he was laying on a couch and so he was a little bit onto his right side, but otherwise supine, maybe turned a a little bit. And he had a blanket underneath him, so we just used the blanket, moved him to the stretcher. So like thinking about it, between me and my partner, there was minimal movement. It wasn't like we were changing his position entirely. Um, We were pretty much able to just pull him from the bed to the stretcher and move him pretty minimally. But then after that, I would say within 30 seconds, he looked like he was in distress and by the time that he was out the door, not even in the ambulance. And this, he was in his living room, which was attached to the front door. So we maybe had 30 feet to go. And by the time we had moved 30 feet, he had begun seizing. Right. So this process sort of unfolds rapidly. Um, And a lot of times when we think about our patients in rhabdo that have these acute injuries, things often start to get far worse before they get better. Um, they will start to seize and the intracellular contents will start to flow places we don't want them to go, really. And so our patients will start to decompensate and decompensate fast. And so it's important to intervene quick at the EMT level, but also at the medic level, right? So early recognition of signs of rhabdomyolysis is the most important thing. And like you said, right, we sort of went in opposite direction on this call. We moved our patient, we might not have recognized the early on signs and symptoms of rhabdo. Not much muscle movement for an extended period of days. Oftentimes when we see someone not moving for a period of days, they're going to have a lot of bodily excrement around the house. They're going to have urine output and fecal output. So a lot of times when we think of rhabdo, we often think about the metabolic derangements that follow along with it. So when we try to diagnose rhabdo, In the hospital, it's going to be very different than what we're seeing in the pre-hospital setting. We tend to take a deep look um, into the lab values. We're trying to obtain uh, as much information as we can. And so we do this with something called a McMahon score, which is going to evaluate the uh, creatinine, the creatine kinase, which is a huge marker for rhabdomyolysis. Um, It's going to look at our phosphate, our calcium, our bicarbonate, our anion gap, our initial and trending CK values, our potassium values, our urinalysis. We're going to look at urine output. There's a lot of things that when we look to diagnose rhabdo, we're just not going to be able to do in the pre-hospital setting. And we know that this podcast is focused for our pre-hospital providers. So what are some things that we're going to want to look for and what do we do from there? So the first thing we want to do is look for signs and symptoms of possible rhabdo. And if we are suspecting rhabdo, Uh, we want to keep that patient right where they are. So is there urine output or fecal matter around where they are? Does it look like they've been sitting in the same spot, staying in the same spot for an extended period of time? Is there evidence of pressure sores or pressure necrosis on the skin, um, signs of trauma or crush injury? If they have had any recent history of seizures, um, prolonged muscle contraction, And then are there signs of muscle cell breakdown? So hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, a lot of that's going to be obtained in our EKGs. And then how are they presenting it with their mental state? So are they stuporous or somnolent? Are they in a comatose state? A lot of that, it should really start to be ticking red flags in our head that this patient might be experiencing rhabdomyolysis. So in this specific instance, our patient is moved. Uh, They begin experiencing seizure-like activity. Uh, They begin to have a seizure. And we are initiating the BLS care, Olivia, that you were initiating when you first got on scene. Now there's a paramedic-level provider there. Walk us through what occurred and the next few things that started to happen with our patient. So as the the patient began seizing, the the paramedic um, had gotten to scene maybe a, a few seconds before that and was asking report, so immediately she looked down, and she goes, is that a seizure? And I was like, I guess so. <laughs> so her 
questions to me were what are his vitals? Asking, was he hypotensive? He was normotensive. What was his blood sugar? And I said, perfect score, got 100. And so to me, none of the vitals made sense to produce this outcome. So I thought they must be separate problems. And that's when the paramedic said, okay, where'd you guys get him from? Kind of realized, oh, he was on the couch, talked to the son a little bit, got more of the story that he may have been there for three whole days. And we moved very quickly from there. The first instructions for me were to get oxygen on the patient, which quickly turned into a BVM, get out the AED pads because it was time for cardioversion. And this is my first time actually seeing AED pads. <laughs> so I did not know how we went from zero to 60, but everything felt very fast. And I would have said that we were probably doing all of these things for about two seconds by the time we had the patient hooked up entirely to the cardiac monitor. I had begun bagging him. He did start vomiting. So we got suction out. And all of a sudden it was all hands on deck. There were four providers on scene and we, we were all working together. And I just had to say, what is happening? Because I didn't get it. And that's the one thing that we see with a lot of our patients that are in these really acute settings that have changes in daily lifestyle, but especially in rhabdo, right? When we're going from, and we talked about it earlier, no muscle contracture, and then we have muscles moving, they want to release all of these intracellular contents. So Olivia, you talked about it a little bit, but when we think about what rhabdo is, when we are not moving our muscles, we have this striated muscle in our tissues and it's damaged. And when that happens, our cells start to die. And when cells die, they don't just disappear. Nothing in our body just disappears. Our body has a system for everything. So we have to get rid of that waste. And the way that we do it is through urine and feces. So our patients that are in the earlier onset of what we would call maybe pre-rhabdomyolysis are urinating fine. They have good urinary output. Maybe they haven't moved in a while, but their cells are dying and they're being filtered through the body and being released. So when our patients can't release that toxin anymore, and when we think of the toxin, we're thinking of calcium and potassium, myoglobin, and like I said earlier, our creatine kinase, it releases it into the serum and that will go to a lot of different tissues. It's going to go to our heart, it's going to go to our neurological system and our patients may begin to seize because of the muscle contracture um, and really where all these contents are going because we're not excreting them. It's now free flowing in our body. And so when that happens, everything decompensates quickly. So your patient's normotensive, which would be a further sign that he's probably not in the point of rhabdo yet that we would call uh, severe hypovolemia, right? But he probably doesn't have great urine output. He's probably not producing any urine. There's probably not, he, you know, he probably isn't wet when we think of like assessing our patient. You know, if he was wearing pants, he probably didn't urinate on himself recently. Doesn't look like any recent fecal matters there. Like everything's dry, stained, kind of has that odor to it. They were like, yeah, we're kind of in a weird place right now, but nothing seems super recent. And so that's the first sign that we'd be thinking of some sort of AKI or acute kidney injury. And that's going to be our concern here with rhabdo. So you said that everything decompensated quickly. Paramedic got there, got everything hooked up fast, and we'll sort of continue to break down the treatment. And then we can talk about uh, some of the different types of treatment that we can do and some tips that I have for when we encounter rhabdo, you know, in the future. But we get our patient hooked to the monitor and... Obviously, at this point, we're outside of, of your scope here as an EMT, right? Our patient's severely tachycardic, seizing, like clearly not doing well. So we know this is a higher level of care. You have a higher level of care on scene, but walk us through what you knew and what you now know, being a pre-med student and seeing this, how did that click? So we were talking earlier about enzymes and cells. You got to see this patient live and you admitted that you didn't know in the moment that this was rhabdo. And that's awesome. No big deal, right? We figured it out afterwards. We thought about the call. We're breaking the call again now and breaking it down to figure out what's going on. So remind us of some things that you learned. And then did you have a moment where everything sort of clicked? You're like, okay, I know it's rhabdo. Oh my gosh, 
that makes so much sense, right? We think about, you know, the patho and the cell breakdown and tissue breakdown and everything that's like really micro. And then you're like, whoa, I saw all of those small things happen in a big way. Did you ever have that like click moment? And if you did, what was it for you on this patient? I was really lucky because the paramedic on scene debriefed with me after the call because she definitely knew that it was my first critical call and she did have a high suspicion for rhabdo. But that didn't mean too much to me. I mean, it definitely did because I was thinking, okay, what can I do in the future? But I didn't have the moment of this is a really big deal where it clicked until Will was actually showing me a bunch of different strips that he had printed out from his EKGs. And he showed me one for hyperkalemia. And I was like, I didn't say it to him at the time, but I was like, yeah, I have seen that before. Um, Because it's very distinct when the monitor was reading uh, over 180 beats per minute. I just gave a quick glance and I was thinking, what is going on? That's not what I know to be seizure activity. Not that I knew a ton, but... I was, I was very confused, and then as soon as Will was telling me about how electrolytes can create abnormal rhythms in the heart, I had my aha moment. This is really important, and this is something that I would like to learn more about so that I really can prevent it in the future. Something that Olivia tortured herself with was asking me about cardiology, because that's a, it's going to be a long day. Uh, we'll sit and talk for many, many hours. Um, but it's, it's really awesome to see that. And so Olivia and I actually never talked about this patient or this call or broke it down up until like, you know, a couple hours before recording this episode, really. And so I didn't know much about it, but I did know that it was really a great patient experience for her and she wanted to talk about it and I was all for it. And when she told me that it, things started to click for her when we think about cardiology and she's like, I don't really know why you know, the patient was cardioverted, but I really like cardiology. So I'll pull out rhythm strips just out of thin air. And, uh, when we were looking at a few of them, Olivia was like, Oh my gosh, that looks like a patient that I had. So when we were breaking it down, that's when things started to click. So that whole process is why we talk about things like this. So what I want to get into now is sort of the treatment that you saw the paramedic conduct on scene. Obviously we talked about a cardioversion, but walk us through like the little last bits of maybe electrolyte changes or patho that you want to talk about. And then we'll start talking about the treatment route that was done and some of the things that we can and can't do in the pre-hospital setting and some things that are good ideas when we do suspect or recognize rhabdo. I was a bit lost in the back of the truck because once we had our patient hooked up and ready for transport, I did end up driving, which, which happens very often for BLS providers. So I didn't get the answers of why we were doing things and treatment needed to be continued on the way to the hospital. So it was very much have everything set up, make sure the patient has the ABCs covered, and then let's get in route. So even to this day, I still don't know the paramedic side. I know that cardioversion occurred. I don't know what fluids were given to the patient. I don't know the further treatment. And so if you could just walk me through what the proper treatment is for a patient like this and what I should be looking for when assisting a paramedic in the next time. So yeah, Olivia, I think that's a great question and a great point that you lead us to is how can you as the EMT assist the paramedic on a call like this? And when I talk about how a paramedic can manage rhabdo, some of the things that we're doing in the pre-hospital setting to manage this patient and uh, these patients we're going to be talking about a few different things a few different treatment plans and often there's a lot that you can do to assist the paramedic as an emt but once i finish the treatment of how i would manage it as a paramedic again these are very complex patients so the management's going to vary really patient to patient all of them are going to present in a different way so the management will vary but there's going to be a few consistencies with it But I want you to talk about your thoughts on this as an EMT. I think that you have such a great perspective working as an EMT, being a EMT on a MICU for the last 10 months and having a good amount of pre-med experience. I think that you have a super unique perspective on this. So I would love to hear your take on 
the EMT level management and treatment of this patient, now that we've talked about it a little more in depth, and now that you and I have talked uh, on a personal level about this call and broke it down, knowing the different treatment options that you have. So at the paramedic level, one of the first things that we want to do when we are assessing a patient like this is when we start to suspect rhabdomyolysis, we don't want to move these patients. And Olivia, I know that you learned that the hard way. Uh, You moved your patient and things started to decompensate quickly. Your patient began to deteriorate rapidly. And so when we highly suspect rhabdo, and even at the EMT level, when you're suspecting your patient is experiencing signs and symptoms that are consistent with rhabdomyolysis, it's important to leave them where they are, ensure that a higher level of care is on the way, and begin to manage at the EMT level uh, the basic life support, the things that we can control, right? So we're going to start thinking about managing the airway, uh, attaching them to AED pads if they are appearing very sick and ill, and I would urge you to do that pretty quickly. As you saw, your patient began to decompensate quickly, and you put the AED pads on early. Those pads will transfer to a life pack if you're using a life pack. So getting those on is really helpful for your paramedic. The next thing you want to do is start to evaluate how progressive this rhabdomyolysis is and really looking at the acute kidney injury and how suspicious we are that this patient's experiencing uh, an AKI because that's going to be the most lethal thing. So like I said earlier in this episode, in the hospital, they have a McMahon score and they can calculate that to get a rhabdomyolysis score. In the field, we want to know, are they in this stage of mild rhabdo or moderate to severe? In the hospital setting, we're going to look at those and judge them based off the creatine kinase values. So if it's 1,000 to 5,000 units per liter, it's going to be that mild and anything greater than 5,000 units per liter is going to be that moderate to severe rhabdo. So when we're evaluating for that acute kidney injury, we really are going to look at a few things in the pre-hospital setting. And one of the most important things that we need to really diagnose in the pre-hospital setting is the patient's fluid status. Are they hypovolemic? Are they uvolemic? Or are they hypervolemic? And so when we're looking at this in the pre-hospital setting, we need to do a really good physical exam. We need to listen for lung sounds. We need to check for peripheral and pulmonary edema. We need to get them on the cardiac monitor quickly. We need to take a good look at the surroundings. Is there signs of an input-output imbalance in the urine, oral intake, weight changes? Are there food and beverage around the patient? Does it look like they've been sitting in the same spot, not eating or drinking anything? And then when we do that, that's really going to guide us down our treatment plan when we think about how we're going to manage rhabdo as a paramedic. And the initial treatment plan is really going to be based off of our assessment of their fluid status. So typically when we are treating our patients in rhabdomyolysis, if they are hypovolemic or uvolemic, we really need to do aggressive fluid resuscitation. We need to probably give these patients LR, or some sort of neutral plasma light because it's going to have a a neutral effect on the pH. So giving these patients a liter, most likely more of lactated ringers, if you don't have LR, if you don't have some sort of plasma light solution, uh, normal saline would be the next best bet there. And that's if we're fairly sure our patients are not acidotic. And when we think about our acid base status of the patients, The ones that are in anagma or a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, isotonic bicarbonate is a fairly sensible treatment. And I know what you're thinking right now is how are we going to figure that out in the pre-hospital setting? And it's going to be incredibly difficult. When we looked at, you know, NAGMAs, the BICAR ICU trial was really good when we're looking at uremic acidosis and treating it. But in the pre-hospital setting, it's going to be really hard for us to distinguish that. So the next piece of our treatment is going to be placing our patient on end-tidal CO2. It's going to give us a good idea at their sort of pH balance, right? It's not the best thing, but it's the only thing that we could have to get a good look at if our patients are acidotic, if they're in a normal range, and how far along has this progressed? Are they 
um, in this respiratory acidosis? Are they in a metabolic acidosis? Are they completely decompensating here? So it's a really good diagnostic tool that we can place in the pre-hospital setting. So that would be the next step. And so after we place that patient on end tidal, we want to start considering whether we should give them some oxygen. If they're hypoxemic, we want to obviously get our IV access since we're doing some fluid resuscitation, get them on the EKG. And then the next few steps that we can do are going to be very similar to our treatments of hyperkalemia and crush injury with the exception of calcium. So giving some albuterol to increase that plasma insulin concentration, which is going to further optimize our sodium potassium pump. Uh, getting a crystalloid fluid bolus in, we talked about LR, normal saline, and maybe some pain control depending on how our patient is presenting and mentating and if they're in a lot of pain. Managing their airway, uh, does this patient need intubated, do they need C-spine management, all of those are going to be based on our assessment findings. And bicarbonate is going to be one of the things that we definitely want to do or consider when we start to see some cardiac rhythm disturbances with hyperkalemia, those peak T waves, maybe a widened QRS, maybe a tachyarrhythmia. And we really want to be cautious of calcium chloride when we're giving it for rhabdomyolysis because of the metabolic derangement that's occurring when we have a patient in rhabdomyolysis. And so the next thing that we want to be cautious of is if they are in a tachyarrhythmia using medications that have a negative inotropic effect. So something that's going to lower our blood pressure as well, um, or anything that has like hyperkalemic properties. And so when we think about that, we think of ACE inhibitors, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, all of those are going to be used with extreme caution in our rhabdo patients. And so that's why oftentimes in the pre-hospital setting for a paramedic, Cardioversion is something that we're going to go to fairly quickly because we don't want to give any sort of antiarrhythmic with a patient that has this huge metabolic derangement. We could often cause more harm. So the treatment's going to be really good fluid resuscitation unless our patient is hypervolemic. They have pulmonary edema, they have lower leg edema, they're really holding fluid in and they can't get it out we're going to worsen that kidney injury. There's a reason their fluid retained right now, and it's because their kidneys are not working. So the last thing we want to do is fill them up with more fluid and not be able to allow them to release that fluid. And then we want to think about bicarb, and we want to manage these patients' airways, their EKG changes. It's really going to come into cautious management of these patients, but always, always, always managing the metabolic derangement the best we can. So Fluid resuscitation, sodium bicarbonate, and managing the airway. Getting them on an end tidal, giving them some nebulized albuterol, helping that sodium potassium pump. Those are all going to be paramedic level treatments. And as an EMT, you can really help us out to assist with those treatments. You can help us get a patient on a nebulizer. You can spike a bag of fluids for us. We're often going to be using a lot of fluids in these hypovolemic rhabdo patients or even patients that are uvolemic we need to do a really good fluid challenge on them. So assisting us in those ways is going to be really helpful for the treatment of our rhabdo patient. And finally, the last piece of the puzzle here with the management of a rhabdo patient in the pre-hospital setting is going to be managing shock. And as you know, on the Newly Meds podcast, we just talked about picking pressors and the use of proper pressors in the pre-hospital setting. So we want to really focus in on the best way to manage that patient's shock state and focus in on our treatment plan in that sense. So it's good to remember that these patients are going to be incredibly complex. They're often going to be some of the sickest patients that we see. So it is critical that we understand that the management is going to vary patient to patient depending on how they're presenting. But we want to ensure that we are doing the most appropriate management possible. And that's going to come down to doing a really good physical assessment. And that starts at the EMT level. So like I said in the beginning, Olivia, you have a great perspective as an EMT to assess a patient. In this case, you got there before the medic. So walk us through what you saw and some of the things that you learned from this. The first thing that I learned was you have to constantly adapt in this job. And I feel like it's a shame that I had to have a patient that was so critical um, 
to realize that because it would be great if you could just, you know, bump up everything, a severity level, and then be a great provider, but that's not how you learn. Um, so having the first patient where you make a mistake is going to help you adapt. I also learned that in this specific case, should I see it again, I'll call for my medic right away because the bicarb option is, is far preferred to what I have already seen. Um, and probably not moving those patients, right? Call for the medic. Yeah. Just sit them right where they are, right? As, as a medic <laughs> looking at you right now talking about this call, let's, uh, let, let's say, hey, Will, I need you for this one. And vitals right there where we're laying for future. Not, again, not a big deal. This is why we learn. For everyone listening, sit them still. Don't move them, please, please. You get an angry Will when you do that. Yeah, I guess I, he can't stress it enough and I can't either. What Will said, absolutely. I don't think that we can stress enough that you, you should not move a patient who has been in the same position for a long time. It's easier to just call for your medic, leave him there, and not have to deal with the consequences. Um, I will say, though, I learned from this that that is not the only presentation that you will get of rhabdo. So unfortunately, this is something that we're seeing in people who are highly athletic, people who exert themselves for hours on end. And should I be on a call with that, I would hope that my mind would jump to that conclusion if I was seeing the same things. But it would not present like an elderly man laying on his couch. And I found a great source for this on a YouTube channel called Townsend Teaching. The video used a wonderful acronym called DOTS, D-O-T-S. So the first letter stands for drugs. So you got to be wary of patients that are on amphetamines or salicylates. The O is for overexertion. So people who are having seizures already or have NMS. The T is for trauma. So this was the case that we were discussing. If somebody falls or if they've been in a situation for a long time. And the S is for statins. So not every patient is going to look like, oh, somebody's been on the floor for a couple of days. Um, that's definitely something that should tip you off and should be the first red flag that you think of while dealing with patients because we do see that case quite a bit in EMS. Um, but just to remember that there is a broad spectrum of why this could happen and just be aware that it might not look like a patient who is elderly, but somebody who is super active. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really great point is that all of these patients present differently. What you said there about the statins really made me smile because we want to take a good look at the medication list. I've said that in podcasts before, um, but it, it really does provide a lot of insight to us. And so that's one of the things that you definitely want to um, take into consideration is it's not just one presentation. And so understanding when we're you know trying to diagnose rhabdo is a very complex thing. You know, we'll get into some tips on diagnosing rhabdo in the field, but uh, I'm going to throw it back to you, Olivia. You know, we reviewed this call and we talked about some of the things you learned from it. What are some tips that you have for the new EMT? Maybe their second day off orientation. Obviously, looking back on it, there are some things that you wish you knew. What are some things that you wish, you know, day one, because that's what the newly meds is about, right? How can I be better on day one? If you had to give a recommendation to the new EMT, second day off orientation, the Olivia who's on the truck by herself and sees this, what are some things you wish that you knew going into this call or going into future calls as well? I will say the Olivia that was on that truck that day was scared before she even got to the call. And that's just, that's just a new provider not having the confidence in understanding what they're going to see on the other side of the door, not having enough experience. Um, but with that, holding the things that I did know would have helped me and just thinking clearly through each situation and saying, hey, I'm not supposed to move a patient off the floor would have helped me. So there are a lot of things that you're going to go over in all levels of education in EMS. But remembering the little things is important. It's not going to be <laughs> like the most natural thing to you, but it'll come to you in time. So giving yourself the grace of saying, hey, I did hear this before, I should have known that, but saying like, I, it was also my first time ever being in this situation. It's really important because you will slowly understand everything that you were taught and the reasons that you were taught it, but 
that doesn't mean that you have to be a master at it the first day. I think a big thing in this industry is that you are dealing with people who are incredibly sick, horribly injured, people that need help. And it was very hard for me to be a new provider and think, I wonder why these people trust me. <laughs> because I think of myself as just a kid. And I'm not, but I, I would think often that if I was walking into somebody's house, they were probably wondering how I got into the business or if I'm qualified, and they're not thinking that. At the end of the day, the patient is having a much worse day than you are, and so you do them a service by keeping a clear head and just being confident in yourself and what you do know as a provider. So I think uh, Olivia made a really good point, and I talked to her about it earlier today, that it's really weird when you start out in EMS and sort of when you progress through, especially at the medic level. But I remember being a young EMT and I'm like, man, patients really look at me to fix them. And you're like, whoa, that's my job. And then when I got my medic, I was like, patients really now look at me to fix them. And my partner really now looks at me to be like, how do I treat this patient? And like, that's a pretty scary thought at first. But one thing that I always say to do, and it's really my tip for any new provider at any level, even in the hospital, is before we start intervening on our patient, just take three deep breaths, count back from three, and calm yourself down and then execute the treatment plan that you want to do. A great medic that trained me told me that the worst thing that you can do for your patient is by doing nothing at all. And if we can uh, take the time to slow our thinking process down in the moment, the best thing that we can do is move forward. When we're not doing anything from our our perspective and not treating our patient at all, we're not doing any interventions, it doesn't benefit anybody. And we just have to keep moving forward. Even if it's something as small as checking a sugar or getting a blood pressure, maybe putting on some oxygen if the patient needs it, we're moving forward in patient care and that benefits everybody. But if we don't do anything at all, it's going to benefit nobody. So taking that time to stop and think really is the most important thing. So as we close out here, I just want to leave you with, at the medic level, diagnosing rhabdo in the pre-hospital setting. And so when we're looking at uh, rhabdomyolysis in the pre-hospital setting and we're creating a list of differentials, Olivia had talked about it earlier. You know, we want to look at a med list, check for um, really the dots that, uh, like she said, everything that we had talked about today, as always, is going to be linked in the show notes. But running through a good clean list of differentials and coming to a conclusion here on what we highly are suspecting. And if we are suspecting rhabdo in the pre-hospital setting, we want to check for any urinary output. Is it, you know, a little bit on the darker side? A lot of people will say it looks like um, tea-colored urine. If they have, like, extreme muscle fatigue, um, found down for a long period of time, altered mental status, some cardiac changes that we might see if we obtain a 12-lead, could be some dysrhythmias. And then as we're treating these patients, you know, like I said earlier, we want to check that that fluid level, but we want to be really cautious in how we do take action on these patients. But we want to make sure that we are treating them and moving forward. So the clinical features that we're looking for is uh, muscle pain, and um, that's 50% of the findings. They say if you read some literature, they might not have any muscle pain at all, but they're just going to have muscle rigidity or um, just stiffness. History of an underlying cause for the rhabdo, dark discolored urine, um, and that's because of the myoglobin that's now getting released through the kidneys as they're releasing those toxins. Um, as far as uh, bedside findings that we can see, obtaining an EKG, we're probably going to see some hyperkalemia and hypocalcemia, so we're going to have a lot of increase in potassium and maybe some decrease in calcium. Um, checking some blood gases if we have the ability to, getting an untitle and seeing if they're acidotic and how acidotic they are, and then making sure that we're obtaining labs for the hospital and checking those out. But uh, we want to manage our patients, you know, like I said earlier, very carefully, making sure that we're doing fluid when it's, when it's needed. But uh, as a lot of our patients go, right, we want to make sure that we're managing the airway um, and just paying careful attention to our patients, managing the cardiac changes. We want to be aware that these patients can progress to cardiac arrest very, very quickly. So we want to do appropriate management. And with that being said, from the medic level, that's really a, a brief case breakdown of rhabdo in a patient that 
Olivia had mentioned, and I think it's a, a really great case study to look at. Um, we talked a lot about, you know, some of the electrolyte changes and um, talking really on a, on a micro level how Rhabdo affects the body and why some of the changes we see in the field occur. So I want to throw it back to Olivia sort of to just talk about some tips that you have for EMTs, sort of your experience so far. So you've been doing this 10, 11 months. We've had a lot of cool experiences together as partners. And uh, to me, it's been such a treat to be able to watch you learn and grow and progress uh, as an EMT. Because I remember young Will EMT and getting mentored by a phenomenal paramedic who made me a lot of the medic I am today. And I think it's a really cool experience to be able to pass that down the uh, tree of life that is EMS. So not just with me, but you've had some great experience overall. What are some tips you have for new EMTs? What's some of the key takeaways you have from this call, but really overall that you have for everyone, Olivia? Well, not that you were calling yourself a phenomenal paramedic, but (laughs) I do think that... Not me, not me. (laughs) I do think that... The way that I was guided by other providers was very helpful. I came into this job thinking it's going to be a stepping stone and it's really found a place in my heart. So I don't know um, what that means for my future, but I do think that like, no matter what, this job has made me a better provider. And the providers around me who are willing to have a conversation with me after a call or sit down and make a podcast episode are the ones that are making the difference. So... I really think that as you go along, there's going to be moments of shock, moments where you mess up. The most important thing is to learn from that. And you'll, you'll progress as a provider and you'll see patterns in patients. And just because you see a pattern doesn't mean that's the final picture of a patient. So going back to the beginning of this podcast, I was talking about one of my early downfalls was just looking, trying to find patterns, trying to recognize what patients were going through and not looking at the biology background that I had and falling back on the science that I know. So moving forward myself, I'm trying to get a better picture and tie all of these missing pieces together so that I can be a strong provider. And if you've made it this far in the podcast, it seems like you probably are too. So hopefully little things like this will be helpful. You can keep learning and keep talking right after your calls, just dissect every aspect of it and ask questions because questions are what's going to help you learn. It's very nice when people around you are willing to answer the questions and have the correct answer for the questions. So if you keep curiosity and you still grow through every call, I think this industry is invaluable for teaching you about how patients respond in real life and how you respond as a provider to them. Yeah, I think that's some of the best insight that you can get. And like I said earlier, Olivia brings uh, some really awesome perspectives to this podcast. And one thing that I've seen in the time that I've gotten to work with her uh, is that there is a question, no matter how big or small, or uh, I always say there's no stupid questions, but she'll be leading with a phrase, this is going to sound really stupid, Will. And I'm like, yeah, I doubt it, but ask away, right? Like, I think that she does a great job at that. And the big takeaway is just ask. Don't be afraid. Utilize the resources that you have. Utilize the providers around you. If they don't have an answer, hopefully they'll go and find one for you. That's like the awesome part about this job. And that's the one thing that I think Olivia um, does a really great job at is is asking the questions. So uh, I think that's a great piece of advice. And I think that all EMT should should strive to do that and ask the tough questions, um, even if it's hard at first. That's what makes the difference, in my opinion. And Olivia might have a, a different perspective on it, but no, I think that's great. I, you have you have some very good insight, and even during this podcast episode, I learned a lot. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to say, "Here's what I want to talk about," and then have you teach me. But it's it's fantastic, and that's that's my only goal here. So I'm very happy to keep learning. Right. I think it's all a process of just uh, learning and rolling with the shots and the punches that we get when uh, when we have calls and experiences and taking as much information that we can from them and learning and making better decisions or uh, just making a more informed decision by reviewing these calls. So um, this was awesome for me to have Olivia on the podcast today. I think that uh, this is a really cool episode. I love having guests on uh, and Olivia has been 
uh, awesome partner to have. And we joke around with the podcast a lot, but I knew when she was uh, planning on coming on the podcast, I was like, this is going to be a lot of fun because we work together. We've spent many, many hours in the truck together. And it's just cool to, to be able to bring people on like that uh, and get their perspective on it. So um, definitely, definitely was a lot of fun. And I hope you guys, you know, have a good takeaway from it. I think there's a lot of really good information here. So, but Olivia, it's been great having you on the podcast. It was awesome. Fantastic to be here. And let's all remember to not move patients like I did. Yeah. Leave your rhabdo patients (laughs) where they are. Even if it's like a really weird, funky place and they're like in a super weird position, maybe just be like, ah. I know that looks weird right now, yeah. but like, let's it's, not move It's them. not worth it. Not yeah. worth it. <laughs> not worth the cardio version. No, but thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, bucket list item checked off right uh, here. No, I appreciate it. That's <laughs> awesome. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun, Olivia. So uh, like I said, guys, this was a really cool episode. I'm excited for the episodes we have in the future, but uh, this one was marked on my calendar for a long time as a, a, an episode I was looking forward to. So Olivia, thank you. Thank you, Will. (laughs) Cut!